0: Good morning, everyone. It is my great privilege to be able to share a word from God's scriptures with us today. And my prayer is that we will all see Jesus more beautifully and more clearly today. Let's have a a prayer before we dig in. Lord, come and be with us. Send the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts to your word and to whatever it is that you want to speak to us today. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to show you a few pictures. This one will make you dizzy, but um, if you look at it, kind of move your eyes around while looking at it. It kind of looks like it's moving. And yet, there's nothing actually moving about it. OK, let's check out this one. Stare at it. I don't know if it'll quite work on the screen, but let's give it a try. Stare at it uh, for maybe like 20 seconds or something, nice and hard. Just stare at it very intently. And then I'm going to tell you to do something (coughs) Keep staring, staring, staring. A little bit longer. A little bit longer. Okay, now, look at the white right next to it. Look intently at the white. Do you see anything abnormal? What did you see? A white light bulb. You saw a white light bulb. It was, yeah. it was like it was glowing, right? It's like I was looking for a dark one, I see a white one. Yeah, now it's glowing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, let's see a different one here. Um, Let's see. Okay, what about this one? How many animals do you see? One. Two. What do you see, Jedediah? Two. Okay. Name them. A duck and looks like a giraffe neck. That, Yeah, it does kind of look like a giraffe neck. You see a duck as well? You see a bunny. Excellent. So there's um, There's uh, different things that might not quite be as they appear or we see multiple things. Um, let's see. What about this one? How many different colors of little squares do you see? I see. I see I see Yeah, I see five. No, I see four. I see four. You see four? Anyone else? Okay, we've got six. Someone said six. Are the truth are is... Are we eliminating white as a color? Or do we use color um, besides white. Besides oh, besides I'm white. so sorry, that wasn't clear. Oh, three. The truth is that there's only two colors other than white on that, on that screen. There are only two. It's just the placement of the pink and the... And the green together that looks like there's more. Weird, huh? Aren't we counting green and purple and brown? It's crazy. There's only two the pink and the green. Okay, this one which end of the, of the horizontal band is darker? It looks darker on the right. It does. It does. It's the same, though. Isn't that crazy? It is actually the same. OK, now, um, count all the black dots that you see. <laughs> yeah, that, that will mess with your mind. There's actually n- no black dots on the screen, only white ones. Uh, but then they seem to appear and disappear. OK, the horizontal lines, are they parallel or at angles to each other? Horizontal line. The horizontal lines. Horizontal. The ones going this way. They are yeah. They are actually parallel, like just like a straight ruler. They just look like they're different. Uh, OK. just a couple more here. The vertical lines, the ones going up and down. Which one is longer? The one on the right looks longer. They're the same. They are the same. If we were to get out a ruler, we would realize that they're actually the same, even though they look like they're not. Optical illusion. Um, yeah, you've seen you've seen this one before. How many ladies do you see? Yeah, there's there's two ladies. There's a young lady you can see and an old lady in the same picture. Um, this one also looks like it's moving if you look at it right. Kind of like they're like turning around. If you move your eyes around, do you see the movement? Except there's nothing actually moving. Okay, so. The point of that exercise is that you can switch over to the slideshow now. The point of that exercise is that things are not always as they appear at first glance. This is true in many areas of life, optical illusions like this, but also in situations, relationships, people. Sometimes we look at God and think one thing, but if we were to really dig deeper, another thing is actually true. There's some verses in the Bible that uh, are kind of like this as well. At first glance, it looks like they're saying one thing, but then if we truly study it out deeper, we realize that there's actually a totally different message that God has for us there. I'd like to look at one of those passages today and see if we can get to uh, the bottom of what message God actually has for us. Uh, This passage is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 14, verses 9 through 12. Revelation 14, 9 through 12 yeah, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in this passage quite a bit. So you can just kind of keep your Bible open to this passage. Revelation 14, 9 through 12. Here we have this uh, presentation of three angels. And they're, bo- they're all proclaiming very important messages that go all over the world. Uh, verses 9 through 12 is actually the third in this sequence of three angels some things about these messages in general. Uh, we find in verse 6 that this angel is flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, and it's preaching whatever this message is to all the world. So this, these messages that we have here, just to get some context, it's something that's going to be going on all over the world. Um, Now, going on in verse seven, it talks about uh, an hour of judgment that has come. This makes me think that these messages that we see here in this book, in this passage, have to do with somewhere near the end of Earth's history. If there's a judgment going on, this must be somewhere near the end of, of Earth's history. Um, and there's a theme that seems to keep coming up throughout these messages, and that is the theme of worship. So, here are some important messages all over the world near the end of time, and it has to do with worship as uh, a major theme true versus false worship. If we go on to the third angel, which starts in verse 9, um, Why don't we read the first verse there? Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand... We'll pause there, and we'll keep going a little later. Um, Just to give us a little context, this is referring back to some symbols that were mentioned in the previous chapter. It mentioned a beast, an image... Uh, a mark we're not going to go into detail on those items today we can study those more in the future but um, uh, let's, let's go on to verse 10 evidently this, this beast is some antagonistic power to God someone that's trying to go against what God wants Okay. Let's go on to verse 10. Um, And I want to hear your reactions, what you think when you read this for the first time, okay? First glance, remember? Uh, But then we're going to dig deeper. Verse 10 says, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now, when you read that for the first time, Do you get nice warm fuzzies in your tummy? No, I don't either. At first glance, this looks kind of scary. It looks like God might even be mean at first glance, right? But before we jump to any conclusions, I'd like to maybe wrestle and think about a few different concepts. Oopsie. Let me turn it on. Okay. Let's look at this picture. What is this picture of? A bear with a Yeah. A bear mommy bear. I heard a mommy bear. Yeah. Mm. Now, have any of you ever been around a mommy bear? Melissa, you have? Um, what was it like? It was scary. It was a little scary. Why was it scary? They're protective of their cubs. They're very protective of their cubs. What might they do in order to protect their cubs? So they hurt you. <laughs> They might try to protect them, huh? Against predators or anyone who might hurt the kids. Um, this mama bear, might even exhibit behavior we might uh, describe as angry or wrath or being upset. But the mama bear only exhibits that because of a deeper love that she has for her cubs. Interesting. Are there any situations that you can think of where it might be the most loving thing to get upset? Can you guys think of any? Yeah. There there are situations where maybe the most loving thing one can do is to get upset. It's kind of a a shocking thing to say in a a peaceful church environment, but it's the truth. And you know what? Sin hurts God's children. When you look through history... (coughs) at all the havoc and destruction and misery and pain that sin has caused God's children throughout the ages. You can imagine why God might get upset at sin because of what it's done to his kids. Sometimes God gets upset because he loves his kids. That's one concept I want you to to keep in mind as we read this passage. Here's another quick question. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who had to drink a cup that had undesirable liquid in it? We just read about in this passage in Revelation, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Can you think of anyone else in the Bible who had a cup similar to that, with something undesirable in it? Jesus. Tell me, when did Jesus have to drink a cup like this? When was that? That's right. Do you remember when he was there on his knees praying to his father? He felt the weight of the sin of the world on him. And he said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Jesus drank this cup so that we wouldn't have to Isn't that beautiful? Jesus drank the cup of of anger against sin so that we wouldn't have to. There's this uh, quote that I love. Here's describing Jesus in that moment. So dreadful does sin appear to him, so great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he's tempted to fear it will shut him out forever from his father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression. He exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. He felt that by sin he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. Um, Let's skip down to um, the conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation Let's skip down to here. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out His life. Jesus experienced the wrath of God against sin here, didn't He? From His pale lips comes the bitter cry, Oh my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Here we see Jesus drinking this cup so that we wouldn't have to. God loves us so much that he would rather drink the cup of wrath against sin himself rather than force anyone else to drink it. With that in mind, with those glasses on, we come back to Revelation where it talks about those who reject God drinking the cup of God's wrath, these people didn't have to drink that. Jesus had already drank it for them so that they wouldn't have to. Um, I need a volunteer, maybe a kid if they're willing. Is there any young person that would like to come up and help me? I need I need a I need a volunteer. Okay, so can you help hold this for me? Uh, You know I've actually got the lapel on. Um, I think we'll be okay. Thank you, Linda. That's very kind of you. Okay, we're going to make a concoction here today that's going to be nasty. All right. Start out with a zinger, a base of lime juice. Let's hold it over the paper towel here for me. Thank you so much. Okay, put some lime juice in there. And now, what do we have here? Some gourmet curry powder. We're going to put a ton of curry powder in here. Uh, curry powder, when you put a little bit, is nice, but if you put too much, boy, it gets bitter, let me tell you. I've ruined some dishes at home by doing that, unfortunately, when I didn't listen to my wife. Okay. Oh, man. Good. Um, What about some cumin as well? That's good in little amounts, but you add too much of that, and whew. Okay. Now, um, thank you, Jedediah, for volunteering for me. Your job is not done yet. Do you know what I'm going to ask you to do next? I don't drink. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to drink that. Oh, no. No. Would you like to? I can. You don't want to? Here. You know what? I don't, I don't want to be accused of any abuse happening in the church. So Jedediah. here's what I'm going to do, Jedediah. I'm gonna drink it for you, okay? Mm -hmm. (sighs) Whoa. (laughs) I drank it all so that you don't have to. Great job, Jedediah. Now, um, Jedediah, if you can sit down, if I drank that for you, <clears throat> what would you think if, if uh, what would we think if Jedediah said, um, "No, thanks for drinking that for me. Um, I'd actually like to drink that myself as well, that nasty, bitter liquid." And then he got a second cup and drank that full down. What would we, what would we think of that? It would just be unnecessary, right? Completely unnecessary. Why does he have to go through all that um, agony of drinking this most bitter liquid when I already drank it for him? But in Revelation, the people pictured here are drinking a cup, the cup of God's wrath that they don't have to drink. Jesus already drank for them so that they would never have to. Do you see how God's love is really in this passage? If we dig just a little deeper, let's go on to the next phrase in the passage, Revelation 14. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, verse 10. Now that, right there, at first glance, looks awful. Uh, Tormented. What a strong word to use. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it say that God torments these people? Not necessarily. It doesn't actually say that God is the one tormenting here. It just says that he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The presence of Jesus, let me just make something very clear. The presence of Jesus is not tormenting. The uh, the Bible says in Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy." joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what the presence of Jesus But if I refuse to let Jesus work in my heart to change me from my selfishness, if, if my heart is bent on turning away from God's ways, turning away from the joy and peace that He has for me, what's going to happen if I go into the presence of Jesus? At the very least, I'll be a little squeamish. I'll be a little bit uncomfortable because all around me is light and glory and selfless love. When in my heart, all that is there is selfishness. Do you see how someone who, who made those decisions to reject God, being in the presence of Jesus, it might feel like torment. There's another quote that I want to read to you that I think provides understanding on this topic. It says, the sinner could not be happy in God's presence. He would shrink from the companionship of holy beings. Could he be permitted to enter heaven? It would have no joy for him. The spirit of unselfish love that reigns there. Every heart responding to the heart of infinite love would touch no answering chord in his soul. His thoughts, his interests, his motives would be alien to those that actuate the sinless dwellers there. (coughs) Heaven would be to him a place of torture. He would long to be hidden from him who is its light and the center of its joy. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own unfitness for its companionship. The glory of God would be to them a consuming fire. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of Him who died to redeem them. This is is absolutely tragic. Absolutely tragic. But it shows us that God, when He makes a decision that says, no, this person... Will not come to heaven that is not because he's a mean god it's because he knows they wouldn't be happy there and the mean thing to do would actually be to force them to be where they don't want to be that's why we read in revelation about when when christ appears those who have rejected Him will cry for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the face of Him, because they don't, they don't want to be in His presence. So how can I prepare so that I will love being in the presence of Jesus instead of feeling tormented? Well, it starts with learning to love to be in the presence of Jesus today right here and now. Do I love being in the presence of Jesus now? As I spend time beholding the beauty of Christ, the Spirit of God changes my heart. I receive the gift of Christ's own righteousness. He changes me to become more and more like Him. And then I'll feel more and more and more at peace and natural in His presence. Okay, let's move on in this passage. Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Now this is a little bit of a tough one. It sounds at first glance like um, this, uh, this burning is going on forever and ever, or this, whatever this situation is. But I want to quickly go to a, a verse, Jude, 1, verse 7. This talks about something that I think will give us some light. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, uh, we'll skip down to the bottom, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So let's get something straight here. Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of eternal fire. Hmm, That's interesting. Now, in the Old Testament, we have the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They got burned up. um, But have any of you been over to the Middle East? Have you seen Sodom and Gomorrah still burning over there? No. That went out a long time ago. And yet, They're an example of eternal fire. Sometimes in the Bible, when it says eternal, it doesn't mean going on continuing to burn forever and ever. The consequences, the results, are eternal. It's a complete um, destruction, not a continual burning. Um, Let's go on to the next one, Revelation 14. Verse 11, the next phrase there, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and receive the mark of his name. No rest. Now that sounds like quite an awful experience. There's multiple ways to have no rest. No peace. peace. One of the ways is by doing wrong. Have you ever remembered Uh, Can you remember a time like when you were little or maybe not so distant past when you did something wrong and You just didn't have peace about it You just couldn't rest. I remember times when I when I did that and Just had this uneasy Feeling inside of me. I didn't have rest now. There's another way not rest and that is for those who try really, really, really hard to do the right thing. They also have no rest. Have you ever done that? You're trying, trying, trying. OK, I'm not going to make a mistake. I have to get this right. Do all these good things and never fall. That's also an experience of no rest. you see how there's two? ways you can have no rest. And the people, the dear people that this passage is talking about could be in either of those who are willingly doing wrong and then not feeling peace about it or those who are working so hard of their own power to gain salvation or to make God love them or something like that, that they have no rest. How can we have true rest? Do you remember Jesus said in Matthew come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We can find true rest in Jesus. Check out this quote. This is absolutely beautiful. Come to Jesus and receive rest and peace. You may have the blessing even now. Satan suggests that you are helpless and cannot bless yourself. It is true. You are helpless. I am helpless. But Jesus before him. Say, I have a risen Savior. In Him I trust, and He will never suffer me to be confounded. In His name I triumph. He is my righteousness and my crown of rejoicing. (laughs) Let's uh, go on to the next one here. There are conscientious souls that trust partly to God and partly to themselves. They do not look to God to be kept by His power, but depend upon watchfulness against temptation, the performance of certain duties for acceptance with Him, there are no victories in this kind of faith. Such persons toil to no purpose. Their souls are in continual bondage, and they find no, no rest. Where did we just read that? <coughs> Until their burdens are laid at the feet of Jesus. We must not trust at all to ourselves nor to our good works. But when, as daring, things, we come to Christ, we may find God will accept everyone that comes to him, trusting wholly in the merits of a crucified Savior. This is how we find true rest. Thank you, you, Josiah. That is how we find true rest. That's what the people... Done for me. Okay, we're nearing conclusions of this uh, of this passage. Thank you, Josiah. Here's the most important verse that will provide um, very important things for the context of what we just looked at. Verse 12, Revelation 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, this verse mentions a group. Uh, in contrast, it seems like it's almost out of the blue. Like, we read all these things about those who are worshiping the beast and receiving the mark of the of his name, and then, all of a sudden, it's like, out of the blue, here is the patience of the saints. It's almost a little bit uh, out of almost looks out of place but it's actually precisely that word patience can also be translated as endurance or perseverance so do you want to know how to persevere or endure and uh, through the trials that we just read about do you want to know how to endure and avoid worshiping the beast, avoid the wine of the wrath of God, avoid being, uh, feeling the torment in, his, in the presence of Jesus and that feeling of no rest. How can we endure and avoid this? Well, verse 12 gives us the key, the solution, the answer to that very question. We find here that there's two characteristics of this group that is able to avoid all that that we already looked at. Number one, they keep the commandments of God. Number two, they have the faith of Jesus. Two characteristics. We're going to go briefly into both of those. Uh, Let's look at the faith of Jesus first. The faith of Jesus. Did you know that Jesus had faith? That's what this verse tells us. The faith of Jesus. This is Jesus' faith. It's sometimes um, easy to, we, we hear this verse like spouted off many times and we forget that this is actually talking about Jesus' own faith. When did Jesus exhibit faith in his life? Well, he had to use faith just like we do to believe that God accepted him and loved him. He had to use faith to rely on the promises of the scriptures, just like we do. He had to use faith to overcome temptation, just like we do. He had to use faith when he was praying for answers to his Father. And on the cross, Jesus had to, by faith, trust that his Heavenly Father was there. Faith is an integral part of the experience that God has for us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. Uh, That verse that Jedediah read us in this morning for the scripture reading talks about how Paul wanted to press on to gain the righteousness of God, not his own righteousness but the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Faith is what gains us the righteousness of God as we exercise that faith. Romans 5.1 says, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we exercise this faith, we've got to remember where it came from because we're so quick to take credit for things. And we think, oh, yes, I used this faith, so it must be my faith. I, I did it. But where did the faith come from? Well, Revelation 14 told us it's the faith of Jesus. It was nothing to do with us. We just used what Jesus gave us. This phrase in Revelation 14, the faith of Jesus, emphasizes the first portion of righteousness by faith. By faith, we receive Christ's righteousness to cover us from our sin. (coughs) Even though we're sinful, messed up, completely undeserving, we receive by faith His righteousness, and God counts us as if we had never sinned. But there's that second characteristic of this group who endure. They keep the commandments of God We find verses that show us that obedience is also important. That God expects good works to to follow. James says, faith without works is dead. And in Ephesians 2, that wonderful passage about faith and salvation, it goes on to say, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This phrase, keeps the commandments of God, emphasizes the second portion of this experience of righteousness by faith. Listen carefully. This is important. By faith, we receive Christ's righteousness not only to cover us, but to transform us. To recreate us to be like Jesus. Now let me clarify. When these good works start to happen in our lives, can I take credit for these good works? Absolutely not. Because why are they appearing in my life? It's because Jesus happens to be working in my life. His righteousness happens to be... uh, at work to produce these things in me. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So, in closing, do you see that in order to avoid worshiping the beast, having no rest day or night, feeling tormented in his presence, drinking of the wine of God's wrath, in order to avoid all that, do you realize how the secret is to receive the righteousness of Christ. That's the key right there. That is the key. The message of Christ our righteousness is the message above all messages that needs to be proclaimed to the world before the Jesus second coming. (coughs) It's time for us to lift up Jesus before the world. It's time for us to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world And as we are drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit, we will come to the cross and see the incredible beauty of Jesus, how much our sins hurt the heart of God. We'll see how he drank that cup so that we don't have to. And as we behold his beauty, his love, we'll fall in love with Jesus. There'll be a a romance that springs up between Jesus and me as I fall in love with this incredible God who loved me so much. Instead of being tormented in his presence, we will learn to love being in his presence. In our helplessness and sinfulness, we will cast ourselves upon Jesus and he will give to us his precious gift of righteousness. He will cover us with his own spotless robe, and God will see us as if we had never sinned. We are complete in Christ. We'll stop trying to work our way to heaven by our good works, and we'll experience true rest. But Jesus won't just leave us there. His love is too powerful to leave us in our sin. As we continue spending time with him, so that His Spirit can work in our lives, His righteousness will not only cover us, it will transform our lives as well, so that we actually become like Jesus, doing His works, keeping His commandments, living out His beautiful character in our lives. But throughout that entire process of salvation that I just described, our eyes are continually on Jesus, not on ourselves. Our eyes must be fixed upon Christ. We must rely upon Jesus completely at every step of the way. Let's close with that verse that Jedidiah read at the beginning. (coughs) Philippians 3, and we'll start just before verse 9. Philippians 3, just before verse 9. Paul's desire is that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in God, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Verse 7, going back to verse 7, it says, What things were gained to me, these I have counted loss, for Christ. Paul realizes where his priorities are. He's like, whatever else is out there, I'm counting it as rubbish so that I can gain Christ and be found in Him, having the righteousness of Christ instead of my own righteousness. In order to receive this gift of Christ's righteousness, it is free, but there is a sacrifice. That we must make, and that is a complete surrender every day to Jesus. <coughs> Say, Lord, take me, take all of me to be wholly yours. And as we make that surrender, Christ will work in us his righteousness and produce beautiful things. So, my question for us today is will we join Paul in counting all things as loss? counting them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. Will you give your whole heart to Jesus today and receive his precious gift of righteousness? Amen. Let us pray and tell Jesus our answer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us to see your character more clearly. And we are grateful that you are such a good and loving God. Our desire today is that you would take us and accomplish a complete and full surrender in our lives. So that you can work in us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. We want to receive that precious gift that Jesus died to give to us, your own righteousness to cover us and to transform us so that we can be like Jesus. We love you so much, and we thank you for this wonderful gift. In Jesus' name, amen.